Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Looking at my podcast guest today, it is hard to believe that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer decades ago. Now, the picture of health and well-being, he is committed to sharing his experiences with those in disadvantaged communities in order to prevent illness and to improve outcomes from treatment. My guest on the podcast today is Derek Butts. Derek Butts, you're very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And in your bio, you say that you've survived prostate cancer. So I want to start with that. How did that unfold? How did you come to that diagnosis? And how did you cope with it uh, when the diagnosis came? So thanks for having me on your show. Greatly appreciate it. The diagnosis came from, I guess, a family history of prostate cancer. I come from three generations of prostate cancer where my grandfather had it, my father had it, my uncle had it. It was just a matter of when I was going to be diagnosed with it. And my diagnosis came in 2016. As my father was diagnosed in 1994, after his diagnosis and treatment, he was pretty adamant and vigilant about getting me to be more proactive with my prostate health understand my PSA numbers. And at age 38 is when I really started tracking it. So 15 years fast forward, it was when I was diagnosed and treated for prostate cancer because one of those things, I knew I was going to get it. It was just a matter of time. So when I was diagnosed with it, it was one of those things I'd been planning for it. And it's like, you know, it's coming. What do you do? So you you prepare for it. And I, I I I think I was ready for it. At least I thought I was ready for it. Yes, you saw it coming. You had a family history of prostate cancer, a very strong family history of prostate cancer. Were you thinking about it until you were 38 or was it at that 38 that you thought, I've got to start looking after myself? Well, it was at age 38 that my father was diagnosed with it. And then I had a doctor who was very aggressive in being proactive with prostate cancer monitoring, basically looking at what my numbers were to understand what they were and how fast they were progressing or moving. So he was very vigilant. Every year I'd go to get my physical exam and he would check my prostate and we would monitor it. And it wasn't until after my levels became over two, I really started looking at a urologist to really understand more in depth what may be going on with my prostate, understand what can be done, what can I do differently. And it was in 2002, I really started looking at changing my diet. My diet was not just looking at my prostate numbers, but my cholesterol numbers and the numbers associated with my health in general. My cholesterol was up to about 202. And again, the doctor that I had, he was very aggressive in being proactive with your health. He said, I'll give you two choices. He said, you can change your diet or in 45 days, I'll put you on a statin. I wasn't one to, to take medicine. So I said, give me 45 days and let me change my diet. After the 45 day period, my cholesterol levels had actually dropped from 202 to 166. And in the past year, since 202, it's never been higher than 176. I'm glad to say, even as this day, uh, my last physical is 168. So it's just knowing and being proactive with my health helped me to better understand my numbers, not only my PSA numbers, but just my numbers in general and my health overall. We are definitely living longer, uh, thankfully. And one of the consequences of that is that more and more of us are developing chronic illness. And cancer can be called a chronic illness because many people thankfully survive that and go on to lead happy and healthy lives. 
What is your thought, having gone through this experience, about what we should be doing in order to prepare for what you think might be inevitable? I think one of those things that goes back to looking at your overall health. As we're younger, as gentlemen, you know, we have high levels of testosterone, high levels of energy. We have a high metabolism. But as we get older, you know, your body starts to change. And part of that change is a development and growth of things with inside you based on the items and food that you put within you. And I think if you look at how you eat and how your body process or manifest what is digested and processing overall, it's really looking at how can I do better with taking care of my health? How can I look to eat healthier? How can I look to live better knowing that as I get older, my body will change? And you have to, you kind of have to go with that change because as you get older, your, your testosterone levels drop, your metabolism drops. And I think it's important people understand they need to do more exercise or different type of exercise to help with this change in the body, change with your mindset and change with your, either if you're a sedentary person or if you're an active person, you know, the things you did 20 years ago, you can't do today. And you really have to adopt a lifestyle that's going to allow you to do that. And I think it's important for people to understand being sedentary is not an option. It's one of those things you always must be moving. The body is designed to be moved. It's not designed to be sitting. It's designed to be active. It's designed to be fit. And the things you put in your body are going to contribute to those things that develop within your body. And I think when you look at things as the people consuming the the saturated fats, people consuming the sugars meat diet versus the plant-based. There's a lot of healthy options, but more plant-based or vegetarian type diets versus those with meat. And it just goes back into how your body processes this, this food as you partake in it. You know, it tastes good, but everything that tastes good is not necessarily good for you. And I think people really need to understand that and look at what are the things I can do now to help me live longer later? And I think by asking that question first, it, it gets you to stop and think, what can I do differently now to help make my life better, make it longer, make it so I don't have to worry about taking medications and worry about certain things that are going to take place. And I say that because I have a cousin who was diagnosed with stage two uh, or type two diabetes, but based on his diet and change and his mindset and outlook on life, he was able to beat it. He was able to come off the medication. He was able to live a healthy life. And now he's living healthy before because he's moving. He's actually changed what he eats, what he puts in his body. And he's really taken time to understand as an older person, my lifestyle cannot be what it was you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And I applaud him for that because it is a, it's a lifestyle change. It's a mindset change. It's overall change to what do I want to do and where do I see myself down the road? I can see how that might have changed his life and I can see how it has changed your life. You look fantastic for your age, I have to say, uh, Derek. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're not going to be showing pictures, but if we could show pictures, I think you look, uh, you look like somebody in his 30s. So you look fantastic. The concern that I have as a family doctor is that I see patients all the time who are, I mean, 60 to 80% of them are either overweight or obese, who have very sedentary lifestyles, who drink too much alcohol, who eat too much sugar and salt. Without wanting to preach at them, what would you say would be the most effective way to get them to address these issues? Well, thank you for the compliment on my, my looks and features. I try to work hard at <laughs> staying fit in life. But I think it's looking at to get people to help them change is have them take a look and they start looking at how you live your life. I think by setting an example of how you live your life, the things you put into your body, the things that you espouse, and, and just your mindset on day-to-day living. 
I think that's important. And the reason why I say that, because I have people who have looked at me and reached out and they said, you know, what are you doing to keep fit? And I have a regimen. You know, I, I get up every day. I do 360 body crunches. I work my core. I do 20 to 30 push-ups. I do two one-minute sets of planks. And then I do Tai Chi. And then I do 50 miles a week on my bike. So that's my regimen. But that's a lifestyle change that I chose and adopted. And, and people see that. So they look and they say, well, what are you doing to maintain your health? And I tell them, this is my regimen. And so how do you get started? I said, you start a little bit at a time. I realize everybody's going to be a different place in their journey in life, and they have to start at a lower pace and work their way up. And I think if people can get into the mindset that they can do it too, I'm a cyclist, but it can be anything. It could be swimming, it could be running, it could be walking, whatever is comfortable and whatever your doctor advises you is safe for you and your body. I think that's important for people to understand. And in that communication and talking to people, we as a culture don't always talk to one another. And I think by having that interaction, that discussion, people start thinking, well, if he did that, I think I can do that too. And that's where it starts the conversation. And the other part of the conversation is not only having the conversation, but then going back and asking yourself, what can I do differently in my life that I can look better, that I can feel better, and I can feel more energized every single day? And it really goes back into your mindset. I mean, the mind's a very powerful muscle and tool that helps you to navigate your life, your lifestyle, and, and, and the things you want to do. The things not only bring you joy short-term, but also things that can help you live long-term. And I think when people see that on the outside looking in and they can start looking within themselves, they can get that introspective to really understand themselves, to want to be more active and, and, and not to say, you know, I may be obese now and, and I can get rid of that if I work at it. It's going to be work in progress. Nothing's going to happen overnight because you didn't put that weight on overnight. So if people understand it just takes time and really set a realistic time frame for them to say, I want to do something not as a fad or not as a one-off, but I want to do a lifestyle change that's going to help me to live longer. That's where it really starts. What can I do differently? And, and I tell my the people that I talk with, you have to ask yourself, what can I do differently? And when you do that introspect and you look at the self-reflection, it, it really makes a big, big difference. When you start asking yourself those questions and start of saying, I can't do that. I think you've hit the nail on the head because... Watching you talk and seeing you right now and how you look and, and how passionate you are and how clear you are and you're thinking, I'm convinced I would certainly be looking to change my lifestyle if we were having a conversation. However, when I'm with my patient, there's only me and that patient in the room. There isn't Derek sitting in the corner as an example. So what is your advice to, to doctors? Is it that we really need to espouse those values and demonstrate them? Or do you think there's something else that we could be doing in order to achieve the kind of results that you're talking about? I think one of the things you can look at is the way my doctor years ago phrased it to me. He gave me a choice. He said, I can give you a choice to change the way you're living and your lifestyle and your mindset, or I can put you on statins and pills for the rest of your life. And I think when you weigh the two, if you ask yourself, do I want to be on pills and medication and all kinds of treatments the rest of my life? Or do I want to take a natural approach and not have to worry about having to rely on statins or rely on certain medications or rely on certain treatments? And when you put it in that perspective, it, it really goes back to a lifestyle change. It's really hard for people to get that their head around that. But I think if you're the doctor and you're the patient one-on-one, -on -one, it's kind of hard to see if the if the doctor is, is the one that's saying it, 
you know, sometimes people, it doesn't always resonate when it comes from an authoritative source. Sometimes it resonates when it comes from somebody more close to the home, like a family member or a very close friend or somebody they grew up with. And I think that has a more impact because they would understand that individual. They understand that individual's emotions, that lifestyle, what challenges they may have in and out of their lives. And I think that would be the bigger impact. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that we talk to people now is trying to meet them where they are because we realize everybody in their life journey is at a different point. And we don't know, and I speak for you, you may not always know what emotional or mental challenges they may be going through. And sometimes those have a psychological effect as far as what they may expand or embrace to say, I want to make this part of my life. The repetition I find is also a key thing. When you're saying something long enough, you may not think it's sinking in, but eventually it does. They, they, that resonates with people. They go back and say, you know, Dr. Moyes, he, he actually had some, some key instructions there. I think I should start looking into that. You may not think it's going to resonate at first, but over a period of time, the repetition, it does start to get to people. You start to wear them down, I say. Yeah, I can see that you might wear me down if you kept going like that. And, and that's perfectly okay. But I think in terms of what you're saying is something really more fundamental I wanted to focus on. And that is the message that the people most likely to influence the decisions that we make are those that we are most closely aligned to. Now, we know, for example, yes. that those communities where we desperately need health to improve are the least healthy for many, many reasons, uh, both uh, yes. financial, psychological, social, all kinds of things. There are social disparities uh, between the healthy and the not so healthy. Being thin is now almost the same as being rich. It's almost the same, has the same kind of connotation. How yes. do we address this social disparity given that it's sometimes very hard to get doctors to work in those areas that most need them. So the social disparities is, is more of a cultural type thing. When you look at the societies and the way their cities are spread out, you have those are then the inner city, then you have those that are outside the city, and then you have those in the, the suburban parts of the cities. And then you have those in the underserved parts of the city. So you have those that are doing well and you have those that are not doing well. And, and I think when you go into those communities, the underserved, population or those that are not doing well because they don't have access to the resources that the rest of the, the city may have. And looking at that, the question is, then how do you reach those that are underserved or don't have those resources? And it's not that they're going to come to you. You really have to go to them. And you have to go to them to meet them in like their churches or their place of, of meeting or the social groups and their organizations, because those are the areas that they are comfortable with. Those are the people that they're used to seeing and interacting with. And, and those are the people that if they make suggestions, they're going to be more apt to or inclined to follow or at least listen to what that person in their inner circle may be saying, because they're the ones that understand their economic situation or their social disadvantage predicament. And they're the ones that also can say, you may not be doing well here, but here's something that may help. And I think that's going to resonate more coming from somebody in their inner circle as opposed to somebody on the outside. And it's one of those things I'm trying to work with some doctors today in our communities to say, how can you reach the underserved? You've got all this money, you've got all this technology and all these services. But the problem is the people you're trying to reach, they don't know about it and you're not making a good job trying to make that connection. So you have to now funnel and go through those organizations, those channels, those community centers, those outreach programs to help them reach 
help you reach them where they are. And COVID has played a big part in really kind of breaking those circles or those bonds or the way people get together because people have not been able to congregate because of the social distancing guidelines from the CDC. But, you know, slowly with the vaccine being in place, people are coming together. People are networking and people are trying to understand how can I come out of this, this COVID situation better, stronger than I was before. You know, some people went through depression. Some people went through emotional distress, despair. And a lot of people, because of it, didn't take care of their health either. Going to the doctors was challenging. If it's challenging, I'm not going to do it. So they keep putting it off. So again, if you can get those health entities, establishments to go into those communities or find an avenue or funnel or conduit into those communities, it makes it easier for them to penetrate and reach the mindset of those that are within those dispersed communities, services, neighborhoods, whatever that may be. So they can better understand that there is hope, there is treatment, there are services that are out there that I can participate in. And a lot of these hospitals and treatment centers, a lot of them have trials that people can participate in. You have some of those with the more socially disadvantaged, the the struggle with money. So how am I going to fund this? How am I going to get the care? I can't afford it. I can't pay for it. I don't have the health care that I need for the type of services that I require. And I think by knowing what are the services that are available, bridging the gap between those that need it, but the people who can make that bridge or that introduction, it's going to help those that are in that situation to help give them some hope. That's a fantastic vision for what it could be like, as opposed to what it is like at the moment, which you quite rightly say, we are not reaching people who most need us because we're not speaking the right language. We're not reaching them in the place that they are most comfortable. Have you seen examples of where this has worked? Yes. I'm working with a group now in Prince George's County outside of the Washington, D.C. area, Community Ministries of Prince George's County. And they're doing very well in bridging their tie in with about 20 different churches and congregations around the county. And they're also working with the uh, Prince George's County government. And their particular nonprofit is helping to bridge the gap to talk about things such as cancer treatments, cancer service, COVID screening centers, prostate cancer, breast cancer, anything to help reach those communities because they're tied into those churches in the communities that are underserved. So those entities like the the Johns Hopkins or the larger hospitals that are in the area, they can now bridge a gap to say, I have an avenue to kind of reach people where they are. Now that they're kind of getting back to go into those churches that they were banned from for the past year because of COVID, there's still some sort of connection. There's still an outreach. There's still a need. It's now tapping into that now that people are coming back. So yes, I've seen the model work. I've seen other people trying to recreate it, but it's, it's, a, it's a matter of how do you navigate and knowing what are the social organizations? What are the outreach programs? What are the people? Who are the people I need to talk to to help me bridge that gap? You can do it a grassroots effort, but you're not going to have the right avenue to make it if you don't have the right people in place. And when you look at something like that, it's really all about networking and networking with the right people who can tap the pulse of that community in which you're trying to reach. And I think it's important to make sure that you have those people who are connected and do understand and engage them properly, as opposed to you driving into the community cold and then trying to figure out why do people not respond when I'm here? Well, people don't know you. People are not comfortable. You have not been properly introduced into their community. You have not been properly introduced into their their inner circle. So somebody has to let you in. The churches are a great way to do that. Community centers are a great way to do that. 
social organization and the disadvantaged or underserved areas are a great way to do that. So when you look at those, you need to figure out then who are the people of those organizations that I need to reach and then reach out to them to form those programs and type of access venues that you can actually work through. And it's going to take time. I think the other thing is looking at expectations. You know, the, the larger conglomerates, they have these expectations. I can do this in a few months. It's not going to take a few months because it didn't take a few months for them to have that separation or that lack of communication between the two. So I think if they realistically set expectations, and I would say realistically, you're looking at at least a year, year and a half before you start bridging that gap to a comfort level where you can get the masses of the communities to be comfortable with what you're trying to do and really get them to embrace the programs that you're trying to provide. And by putting that realistic expectation out, I think people will better understand they can reach the endpoint because I have seen programs where people have tried and within months, they feel like they're not getting the, the connections that they need and they pull it back. And the program fails because they did not realistically set those expectations up front to say, this is how much time it's going to take to reach this group or this entity. One of the concerns I have about that vision, and this is just a peripheral thought, is that there is no money in prevention. In other words, there isn't a company making a whole lot of money out of the drugs that you're producing to deal with this particular issue. So how do we persuade those who might have some funding to invest in this? Because they're not going to see a, an immediate return on investment because somebody not getting diabetes in 10 years time or prostate cancer in 20 years time isn't bringing in income to that particular group. That's a good point. People aren't making money by being putting in preventative type programs. I agree with you. The way the medical system is set up today, you you have to be working, operating, administering to make money. But you're right. So the question is, how do you do that? So in my corporate industry days, a lot of companies had what you call R&D funding. The R&D funding was set up for new programs, new development, for new products and things that needed to be done. I think if the medical community would set up something like that to work with expansion and outreach into the community, they could see that they could help to meet those where they are, at least to let the communities know the programs that exist. And I think also as a lot of the hospitals and cancer treatment centers have been struggling to get people into trials to really help to fund that type of outreach using it from a research grant or dollar type of perspective. I think they would have a better outcome and better success rate in looking at that, knowing that, yeah, at the end of the day, I still would like to help people. I still need to do those surgeries and whatnot. But on the other hand, how can I really help those people understand what services exist, how to be healthier, how to live a healthier lifestyle? And I think that's coming around now, but it's kind of after the fact. You know, you you kind of done it now to the point where you're doing the surgeries and the services, and that's great. But now there's a disconnect, and now you're trying to reconnect to get people to understand these are things that really can help you down the road. And nobody has a crystal ball to really understand 10 years from now, you're going to be diagnosed with breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon. Nobody has that. But what they can do is help people understand what their numbers may be to better understand what are my PSA levels, what are my cancer levels, my white blood cell counts, and those things to really understand what their health may be. Those are kind of things they can start investing into. And that's part of the outreach to get the comfort level to say, here's the entity within your community 
by the way, they offer treatment that they can help you now to better understand your health overall. And those are the small steps. And the small steps allow you to make bigger steps. But you got to build that level of trust first. And I think once they, they bridge that gap and expand and build on that trust, there are other things that they can look at as far as achieving to create a healthier society. And pitted against that is the industry that is encouraging us to eat more sugar, to eat more junk food, to drink more alcohol, to watch more television, to go on Instagram every minute of the day. And those are the counter to the kind of influences that you're talking about. It's a major challenge. How do you think we're doing in the competition for people's attention? It's tough. It's tough for several things. When you look at the foods that are healthier for you, you look at a Whole Foods grocery store versus a food mart or a Walmart or something like that, you're going to pay more for that healthier food. And when you're looking at the those that are disadvantaged or in the uh, communities that are have less are socially stressed or are socially challenged, it makes it harder because those entities like the fast food chains, they make it easier. Not only are they selling food, but they're selling convenience. They're selling convenience at a cheap price. And people now have the myth that, well, eating healthier costs more. Well, I can't afford to eat healthy. So they go for the fast food. So and rather than looking to invest what's going to happen, the fast food may be good for a quick fix, but it's not helping you down the road long term. And I think people are missing the long term because they're living for now and not really trying to invest in their future. They said, this is what I need right now. And I think if people really took a better look at what are the things that are doing now that are going to affect my lifestyle or the type of life I live later, they would stop and think, maybe I should start eating more veggies. Maybe I should start eating more greenery, more ciferous type fruits and vegetables and those type of things, and really put down that Big Mac or that Whopper and, and some of that fried foods because they don't really see what they're missing. All they see is what they can afford and what can satisfy their, their thirst for satisfaction, in this case, satisfying a hunger crave or getting something to eat real quick, as opposed to what's the long-term effect. And too many minorities are not looking at the long-term effect. It's the short game. And I think when you paint the big picture, they say, this is where you may be 10 years down the road based on eating this type of food versus this is where you may be down the road eating another type of food that may be healthier for you. And the other thing is the cultural aspect. When you look at the South coming from Southern roots, the barbecues and the and the, 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 the hogs on the spit and all the other type of the food that was back then, that's all that they knew. They didn't have the other type of foods. Granted, it was healthy because they had a lot of the, the natural organic foods that they grew on the farm too. But then the other the restaurants, the fast food restaurants came to make it more convenient. No longer do you have to spend that extra time in the kitchen. But so it's a trade-off. And it's unfortunate that you know people chose convenience over quantity over quality. Because when you look at it, you can get more bang for the buck going to a fast food restaurant than you can go into a healthy place. And unfortunately, people have priced the fast food to make it more cost-effective and appealing. So when you ask the question about that war, it is a war. It's a, it's a pricing war and it's a quality of life war. And the quality of life, do I want to create convenience or do I want to create health? People see the convenience over health, at least for the short term. And it's not until the ailments start kicking in, the back aches and the knee pains and the, and the obesity that you talk about those start coming into the fact that they start saying, maybe I should do something different when the ailments start kicking in and they get diagnosed with diabetes or they get diagnosed with cancers because of the things that they eat and they're putting in their body. It's, it's kind of hard to say it proactively 
until after something's happened, and then you reactively try to address it. Yeah, I'm reminded by those near and dear to me that the time it takes you to order a pizza and for it to get delivered, you can cook a very healthy meal if you are minded to do that. So convenience isn't just about what you can do in terms of spending a dollar to get what you want. It's also that you can invest the time might seem like a long time in, in, in the short term, but in the long term, yes. you're going to save yourself hours because you know you've learned how you can prepare a quick and healthy meal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it's, it's the time that you take. Like you said, people don't equate that. The fact is, I think the simple thing is, if I get in the car and go, I can pick it up within 10 minutes. Not realizing that car may ride may take 15 to 20 minutes to get there. Then it's 10 minutes for the pizza and then it's another 15 to 20 minutes back. Well, at that time, you've got already, what, 40, 50 minutes. It's almost an hour. And like you said, if you're just taking the time and do it at home, you probably could have cooked it in that time or less. So, Not only cooked it, but cooked something that's actually much better for you than bread and cheese. Let's put it that way. (laughs) The Health Design Podcast and the General Health Design is very much about what we can do today in order to change outcomes, how do we take agency? Derek Butts, not only do you talk the talk, but you walk the walk. And that's very clear to me, even as I look at you today in this podcast. It's been an honor speaking with you. You are an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time and the invitation. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.